Sean Fenske with another episode of Mike on MedTech on the MedTech Matters channel. We're, uh, today we're talking about this new alternative to 510K Pathway. As always, I'm here with Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences, who is my regulatory guru and go-to guy for all things FDA-related and, and topics that come out throughout the year. Uh, to address in this podcast. So, Mike, welcome again to another episode. Thank you, Sean, for those very kind words, and it's always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. Great. So, you know, let's let's kick it right off. We we've been hearing some uh, some some things about this new alternative 510k. Uh, can you give us some insight on basically what it is? Yeah, sure, Sean. This is a, a great question, and I think it's a very uh, interesting topic. Uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the new FDA commissioner, just last month in December of 2017, uh, announced this new uh, uh, 510K alternative, as uh, FDA is framing it. It's part of the uh, new guidance that just came out on the, the least burdensome provisions. And um, basically, FDA is sort of marketing this as a 510K alternative but I'm not sure it's really anything, you know, different than what we already have. That's what we're going to get into uh, uh, in our conversation today. Okay, great. So, you know, you mentioned what we already have. Why don't you just quickly review the the, uh, the different types of 510Ks that are currently in place uh, as opposed to this new proposed alternative pathway? Sure. Well, it's always a great idea to start with what we have first, and then we can talk about what is new. So as many in your audience probably know, we have three different types of 510Ks. The traditional 510K, which is where the, the vast majority of medical devices come to the market, about 82% uh, of 510Ks in 2017 came to the market under the traditional 510K. The essence of the traditional 510K is we have to show substantial equivalence to an existing device, what we call a predicate. Um, in all forms of 510Ks, we have to have we have to show substantial equivalence, but the substantial equivalence is to different things. So in the traditional, it's to an existing device. Um, the second type of 510K is a special 510K. About 13% of 510Ks coming through the FDA in 2017 were special 510Ks. And there are a few different scenarios where specials are used, but the most common scenario is when a company wants to make a modification to an existing device, a device that's already on the market. And it is a significant enough modification, either in terms of design or uh, manufacturing method or something, that they need to uh, let the FDA know. Typically, we do that as a special 510K. In this regard, the crux of the special 510K is to show substantial equivalence to our existing device compared to the device that, um, that's being modified. And basically, we have to show that those modifica modifications do not change the safety, efficacy, performance, and so on of the device. And then finally, the third type of 510K, which is the least common, um, is what's called the abbreviated 510K. Only about 2% of 510Ks coming through the FDA in 2017 were the abbreviated 510K. Once again, just like all other forms of 510K, substantial equivalence is the crux of this, 
only in the abbreviated, the substantial equivalence argument is made to a recognized standard, to a consensus standard, to a, a guidance document, uh, to the special controls, something like that. Uh, and basically, the company does this by including what's called a declaration of conformity. Um, uh, basically, the company is saying that we follow this particular standard, we follow this particular special control or this particular guidance, and therefore our substantial equivalence is essentially to that. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, earlier you mentioned with this, with this new alternative, uh, the, the, you know, bur least burden burdensome provisions. Uh, can you just explain that briefly? Well, sure. So first of all, maybe the, the question is, what does least burdensome mean? So right out of this new guidance from December, by the way, the least burdensome concept has been around almost as long as the 510K has been around in 1976. But least burdensome, um, according to the new FDA guidance, means, and I quote, the minimum amount of information necessary to adequately address a regulatory question or issue through the most efficient manner at the right time, unquote. Again, I'll read that one more time. The minimum amount of information necessary to adequately address a regulatory question or issue through the most efficient manner at the right time. Obviously, that can be interpreted many, many, many different ways. You know, what minimum amount of information might mean to you might be very different to me. What it might mean to your company might be very different to the FDA. And similarly, to adequately address a regulatory question or issue, um, once again, that's a very, very fuzzy kind of a definition. But to be fair, virtually all definitions in regulatory affairs are equally fuzzy, if not even more so. Okay, great. So now, I, I, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit, getting back to your description of the different 510Ks, uh, you mentioned, you know, the abbreviated 510K. Are, are we talking about abbreviated in terms of, uh, you know, the less time or, or the less work for the company? I mean, what, you know, what does abbreviated really mean? That's a good question, Sean. Abbreviated does not necessarily mean what most people think it means. That is, abbreviated does not mean abbreviated in the sense of less time or less work. Um, as a matter of fact, um, ab ab abbreviated 510Ks typically take as long, if not longer, to review than a traditional 510K. But the reason why this is very important to us here is because this new alternative 510K that Dr. Gottlieb is, is, uh, is, is been touting, in my opinion, is really nothing different, perhaps substantially equivalent, if you will, to the abbreviated 510K. In other words, FDA is encouraging companies not to uh, do substantial equivalence comparisons to actual predicate devices, but to use a surrogate to use a, a paper, to make a, a paper substantial equivalence argument. Um, and in that sense, that is exactly what the abbreviated 510K is and has been for the last 41 years since the 510K was created in 1976. So it kind of begs the question, is this really new? Um, uh, I don't think so. 
So, so is this really just a, to make a, a consumer uh, comparison? Is this the the Apple uh, uh, pro, you know iPhone device where there's existing uh, existing regulation already there? They've just repackaged it, given it a little more attention, you know, put out some uh, some promotional materials about this new alternative pathway. But really, it's something that's already been available. I mean, is this just a, a repackaging of of a pathway that's already existed? In my opinion, Sean, based on what we know thus far, that's exactly correct. Um, not to get into a lot of politics here, uh, but by the way, you know, we really cannot separate regulation from politics because where does regulation come from? It comes from the politicians. So I think because uh, the new president and also, you know, the new FDA commissioner are not keen on creating additional regulation and at the same time making it less burdensome, i.e. easier for, bringing, for companies to bring medical devices onto the market. What they have simply done is taken the existing abbreviated 510K, which we talked about earlier, is the least common 510K. As a matter of fact, many people in this industry have never even heard of it. And they're kind of, uh, you know, dusting it off. They're kind of shining it up. And they're bringing it to people's attention and basically saying, hey, why don't you use this uh, or at least consider using this more frequently than some of the other options you're, you've been using in the past. Okay. So, you know, that's, uh, it's, it's, you know, for for the purpose of this conversation, we'll we'll continue to call it a new a new pathway. Uh, uh, but I certainly understand your point, and you make a, v- a very good one uh, about it already existing. But let's take a look at another regulatory uh, concern or another regulatory pathway uh, over, that's happening over in Europe. And as you're well aware, uh, the MDR is going through a lot of changes and, and uh, the EU is, is changing the way that, uh, that a, a device will be received the CE mark. Uh, how does that compare to, to what's happening with this 510K? Well, that's a great question, Sean. Um, for the benefit of, of those of you not familiar in this audience, um, if you have uh, brought a medical device onto the market in the EU in the past or are familiar with the EU medical device regulation in the past, I would suggest you throw that entire framework that you've been familiar with out because the new MDRs that are going into effect literally as we speak and are going to be are in the process of being phased in in the next couple of years. Um, this is a major rewrite uh, to the European medical device regulation. And although there are some similarities between what's in the new MDRs and what we're doing in the United States, there are some very, very important differences in what we're talking about. What you just asked about, Sean, is one of the many examples um, where the EU and the U.S. are diverging, not converging, because as we just talked about here in the United States, FDA appears to be encouraging companies to make more of these um, uh, uh, paper substantial equivalence comparisons or surrogate substantial equivalence comparisons, not to an existing device, an actual predicate, but to a standard or a special control or a guidance. In the EU, according to the new medical device uh, regulations over there, um, they're actually strongly discouraging companies from do that in favor of actually doing a comparison to an actual predicate, either one of your existing devices 
or more often a, um, uh, a competitor's device. And as you can imagine, Sean, this is making a lot of people in the EU nervous because how do they get access to that device? How do they collect the data and so on in order to make that substantial equivalence comparison? I often say, and I do a lot of work in the EU, I often say to my EU friends, to quote a famous politician, I feel your pain. But this is a struggle that we've had in the U.S. here for a very long time. The regulation says that we have to show substantial equivalence. The regulation doesn't say how we show substantial equivalence. And in my opinion, the regulation should not say that. That should be up to us. There are many different ways that we can show substantial equivalence beyond the scope of our discussion today. But bottom line, and believe me, Sean, as an FDA consultant myself, I've seen people come in and do this. Well, here's our new device. Um, we, it's substantially equivalent to the other guy's device, but the other guy's device is not available or it's no longer on the market. Therefore, we cannot do the, the direct testing, the comparison um, uh, ourselves. But just kind of take our word for it. You know, it's, it's, it's basically the same as the other guy's device. Well, FDA, in that kind of a scenario, will basically say to the company, go pop and sand, as they should. You know, it's our responsibility to show substantial equivalence and not to make excuses. So, again, this is one of the um, the, the major ways where um, uh, the European NDRs are actually diverging from the U.S. We're going in opposite directions. And uh, so, so, you know, just just what we know of this, uh, obviously the diverging is not what we want. Uh, you know, we would prefer, and there's initiatives to uh, converge the, the, you know, the different regulations and kind of include, you know, everyone, you know, few, and create for fewer audits and, you know, uh, a clearer path to uh, approval across, you know, international borders, things like that. But is there, you know, do you point to one or the other as being perhaps better or at least moving in the in the right direction over the other or do you not you know is, is that not a statement you want to kind of share well no it's a fair question sean and i don't shy away from offering my opinion so uh, <laughs> thanks for the opportunity to do that listen i think there's advantages and disadvantages to both approaches um as my grandmother used to say many years ago that's why they make chocolate and vanilla so in some cases, um, making a substantial equivalence argument to an actual uh, predicate device is the more appropriate approach. In other cases, making a substantial equivalence argument um, based on a, on a surrogate or a paper comparison may be the appropriate approach. I personally, as a regulatory professional and also as a professional biomedical engineer, because as you know, Sean, my background is in biomedical engineering. That's what my PhD is in. Um, I want to have all of these different tools available to me so that I can choose which one to use in that particular circumstance. Just like a surgeon, you know, I don't want to be micromanaged. I don't want to be limited in terms of the number of tools that I, that I have to, act, to, to, to choose from. I want to be able to choose the, the best tool for that particular task in, you know, that's in, in front of me. And I don't want any regulators, whether it's here in the U.S. or EU or anywhere else, to be able to, to limit me. You know, I need to go in to the agency, uh, to the regulatory authority, and 
make my argument, well, here is, here is my device, this is what it does, this is how it works, and therefore I'm going to bring it onto the market by comparing it to an existing device, a predicate device, and here's why, or I'm going to bring it onto the market by comparing it to a, um, to a, to a surrogate, to a, to a standard, and here's why. Um, so the short answer to your question, Sean, is I think there's advantages and disadvantages, and it should be up to us as medical professionals to decide which one is appropriate for us, and then to go to the regulatory authority, whether it's the FDA or the EU or Health Canada or whoever it is, and say, here's what we're doing and why, and basically sell it to them. And, and that kind of ties in with my, with my last question, uh, for this, for this podcast. Uh, and that's, you know, what, what's the takeaway and what, what, what is your advice for the, for the device manufacturer going forward? You know, whether this new, uh, alternative 510K is, is, uh, you know, similar to the already existing abbreviated 510K or not, it's, it's yet another option. So, you know, you, you know, device manufacturers, when it comes to the FDA, have all these different options for a pathway, uh, to, to have their device cleared or approved. You know, how do, how do they decide what way to go? How do they, you know, what's, what's your recommendation for moving forward? Well, it's a great question, Sean. My recommendation, um, because you're right, we have a lot of different options. And the question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, I'm dating myself, but I remember as a kid going into um, the Baskin-Robbins 31 Flavors ice cream store, and you have to choose, you know, because most people are not going to order one scoop of 31 kinds of ice cream, although it might be tempting. Uh, you know, you have to choose what one or two that, that are, you know, best for you at that particular time. So similarly here, we have to be aware of all of our options that we have, not just the most common ones, but all of them and the advantages and disadvantages to each. And then we have to decide which is the most appropriate given our particular circumstances, not just from a regulatory perspective, but from a, uh, uh, um, a reimbursement perspective, from a product liability perspective, because as we've talked about in other discussions, Sean, um, oftentimes what we want to say from a regulatory perspective may be diametrically opposed, may be 180 degrees out of sync from what we want to say from a reimbursement or a product liability perspective. And once we decide what is the most appropriate path for us in our circumstances, we need to take it to the FDA or to the EU, but let's just say that the FDA here, in advance of our submission, in the form of a pre-submission meeting or something else, um, and basically sell it to them. And most importantly, we need to be able to defend not just what we're doing, but what we're not doing and why. The most important job of the FDA when they're doing their job, and let me be honest, Sean, they don't always do their job. The most important job of the FDA is to, is to criticize everything. So, for example, if we come into the FDA and, this, and we say the sky is blue, FDA's job is to say, okay, prove it, right? It's sort of, uh, you know, the old Ronald Reagan mantra, trust but verify. Or one of, what somebody just told me last week, they had an FDA reviewer tell them, distrust but verify which I thought was uh, kind of an interesting spin coming from a reviewer. Um, so we have to be able to defend, you know, we're making our substantial equivalence comparison to a predicate, and here's why, or we're doing it to a consensus standard, and here's why. And uh, that's the way this game is supposed to be played, Sean, at least in my opinion. 
Well, and and that's uh, another interesting take and another great take from uh, from you, and certainly appreciate it. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this episode of Mike on MedTech. Uh, I'm happy to uh, to have. Uh, been able to speak with Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences once again and if you have any ideas or, or comments or questions for future podcasts that you'd like to see addressed please reach out to me uh, uh, at my email or go to the mpomag.com website and, uh, and contact us through there until the next uh, episode I'm Sean Fenske of Medical Product Outsourcing and I'll see you next time